Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, Rewatch Month continues. We've got the 2002 wild card comeback against the New York Giants this week. And with me to tell us whether or not Earth indeed goes hard, it's David Newman. Okay, I need I need an explanation here. You're you're gonna need an explanation only in some like until you watch Dave and you get uh, through Dave, <laughs> and then I can send you some of Lil Dicky's other stuff. Well, then okay. all of this makes sense. But trust me, this is a Dave reference. You need to watch the show. Uh, in the final episode, he wears an 80s vintage Niners jacket. So yes. we know he's part of the fam. He's He's got to be a friend of the pot at this point. Um, but yes, but there there's a song called Pillow Talking, which is phenomenal. I mean, it is, it's a treatise on the absurdity of, of perhaps religion, uh, post-coital clarity, and it makes an appearance by his own brain. It's, it's amazing. All it's right. such an amazing song. I can't wait you to send s- it to you. You've sold me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We are here, though, this week to continue the rewatch series of games, and uh, this week it's going to be one that is near and dear to my heart. It is the 2002 wild, wild card game where the 49ers come back against the New York football giants in a game that really put me on the journey to football awakening because this was the game where after this game, I was so excited and so riled up, I decided I was going to try to do sports writing stuff and decided to become a volunteer writer for the 49ers web zone after this game. This is my very first article. I mean, article in quotes, it was not very good, <laughs> um, but it was my first kind of recap at the time and, and posted it up and, and I was at the web zone for a while, and that's where I ended up starting the podcast, and, and here we are. Here we are. Man, it, it's wild to think that that started. I mean, this that's 18 years ago. That's a I don't even want to think ago. about that. I do not want to think about me bright-eyed and bushy-tailed thinking that I was going to... Like, Joe Starkey was who I wanted to be, basically. Like, I wanted to scream what a bonanza into microphones. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's uh, that's fucking insane. Well, if you haven't thought about this game in a while, here is a quick recap before we get into just some big takeaways and then round it out with some, you know, kind of random thoughts and a bit of the aftermath of the 49ers because this really was a pivotal game. And and leading up to the game, this was a season where the 49ers were trying to get back to glory after they had thought they had found their man in Jeff Garcia. I mean, this is the 2002 season. This is four years since they had exercised their Green Bay Demons three years since Steve Young retired, and just one year after Jerry Rice became a Raider. In 2001, the Niners were 12-4 and and won the division, and here they are again winning the division in 2002, and now hopefully being able to make some waves in the playoffs. And leading up to the game specifically, it was definitely one where there was a bit of, not controversy, but some bulletin board material leading up to it. Jeremy Newberry, a um, voracious talker, we'll say, (laughs) <laughs> he, he said, quote, a reporter came up to me earlier in the week and asked me what I think about the game. And uh, Newberry, this is Newberry recounting this. He said, I think we're going to kick the shit out of the Giants. That's what I think. Uh, and of course, that then makes all the rounds in New York media. And it's on the Bolton board. It's everywhere. And, and so this is now, you know, the, the, the game intensity is picking up. Opening drive, Julian Peterson gets an interception. And then the very next play, the first play, the Niners run from scrimmage. Terrell Owens scores a 76-yard touchdown. And that was about the last moment in the first half where they were kicking the shit out of the Giants. <laughs> um, because at, at that point, 
Uh, I mean, the Giants offense, even on that first drive, you know, had a productive drive um, leading up to the interception. But in that first half, I mean, they really were just kind of clicking on all cylinders there, completely dominated. Um, you had Imani Toomer and Jeremy Shockey who were just doing whatever they wanted to the 49ers defense. They combined to score four touchdowns in the first half to, to give the Giants a 28-14 lead midway through. The 49ers opening possession of the, the second half, trying to get back in it. They get stuffed on a fourth and short conversion uh, attempt there. Fred Beasley can't get it done. And then the Giants, again, follow that up with a, a touchdown on a Tiki Barber uh, heavy drive there. He ends up getting in the end zone on a six-yard touchdown. And then another three and out from the Niners. They just can't get anything going offensively here. Um, and that's followed up by a Giants field goal. But that would actually be their last points in the game. That would give them a 38-14 to 14 lead with about four and a half minutes left in the third quarter. And it's at this point that Steve Mariucci takes action. He was quoted in a kind of a recap article in 2017. And he said, we need to change everything. Apparently, he called up his coordinators and said, whatever you're doing, change it. We've got to alter course here fast. And, and so the 49ers then come out into permanent hurry-up mode, and things really begin to turn around. The Niners score 25 unanswered points, converting a pair of two-point conversion attempts in the process. The Giants, com- they have one last chance to kick a field goal at the end of the game, and it just fails in a spectacular fashion. And ultimately, the Niners escape with a one-point win. At the time... The 24-point comeback was the second largest comeback in playoff history. And while the Bills came back against the Oilers in the 1992 season, that comeback started at halftime. This comeback started with four and a half minutes left in the third quarter, and it was absolutely nuts. It's a fantastic game. Really, I hope you're watching all of these games before you listen to this pod. We're hopefully, yes. you know, kind of doing a bit of broadcasting of which games you should watch on Twitter or on the Patreon. So hopefully you've already seen it, but... If you haven't and you're already listening to this, go back and watch it. It's The full game's on YouTube. Yep, It is on YouTube. Uh, and so you can definitely go back and watch it because this game was absolutely bonkers. Um, and so that's kind of the, the recap of the game top end. Now, I mean, really the first thing that I thought like take away from this was that the secondary was pretty tr- atrocious. I mean, it was, a, it was bad, really, really bad. Dude, it was uh, it was crazy. Um, like watching how bad that defense was, especially in the first half. You know, but really, again, for most of like the first three quarters, um, it was wild. Thinking I was like, I had to go back and like check and be like, where did they finish in DVOA? Like, what what did they look like that way? Because it it looked like this is a team that doesn't even belong in the playoffs. Honestly, it looked like they were just so thoroughly getting the shit kicked out of them, and it was all largely on the secondary. I mean, you had so you had. Starting corners, uh, Ahmad Plummer and Mike Rump, and then Tony Parrish and Zach Bronson are your starting safeties. And uh, and it was just hilarious how bad they were. I mean, even right from the get-go, um, you had the announcers like going out of their way during the opening Giants drive to just shit on Mike Rump and basically being like, everybody that we talk to every week, you know, all the offensive coordinators, they're looking for a way to target Mike Rump. Like, how can we go after him? And just kept like highlighting his matchups over and over again. Like, they were going hard at him. Um, and it was just, it was like a, a terrible, terrible performance from the, from that entire unit. It was no secret at the time that Mike Rumpf was bad at football. I mean, this is the, he was drafted 27th overall in the 2002 draft. And, and, I mean, people were pretty high on him. He was, you know, a big physical corner that if, if you missed on him could be moved to safety. And, and generally, you never want to hear, well, if, if it doesn't work out at corner, just move him to safety 
right off the bat. It's like at that point, then just play him at safety. We but, got like the one was, bad Miami defender from like that legendary Miami yeah. Hurricanes defense that had like Ray Ed Lewis Reed. and Ed Reed. Ed Reed was drafted three spots before Mike Rumpf. Yeah. We got the one. I mean, that, that defense was so like you could have nearly picked anyone else off of that Hurricane defense and you would have had an NFL star. And the Niners got the one that was just complete shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really bad and and what sucks is i mean th- there were at times in this game where they cut to replays of mike rumpf or honestly sometimes ahmed Plummer trying to play defense and tr- and their technique is just awful their eyes are in the wrong place their hands are whiffing they're just not good and ahmed Plummer had some some you know he had some flashy moments later on in the game and, and actually almost ends up with an interception on the final drive but these are two first round pick corners Ahmed Plummer was also a first-round pick out of Ohio State, and and they were just not super great. Ahmed Plummer was better. Uh, he was a serviceable starter, I would say. But Rumpf was just terrible, absolutely terrible, and it was no secret. I mean, you got Chris Collinsworth out there just saying, like, <laughs> they're going to they're gonna go after him. They're going to go after him. And it's like, wow. Once this makes it into, like, the pregame prep meeting, and they're like, right. look, we're going to go after this dude, it's, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, it was that part wasn't a surprise, right? So like, I, I thought it was funny that they like spent so much time talking about how terrible he was and how much they were going to go after him. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of like had the same memory of Plummer being like a largely solid player, like nothing spectacular, but like I, I felt like he was like decent, right? Yeah. Um, and so he was the guy that I mean, you look at that Giants offense, right? And it was Tiki Barber at running back. Jeremy Shockey at tight end, and then Amani Toomer was like their one guy at, at receiver. And so they had talked about, you know, the, the essentially the game plan for the 49ers was we're going to have Ahmad Plummer follow around Amani Toomer and hope that he can limit Toomer so that that way, not only are we getting rump on, on a lesser receiver, and the Giants didn't really have any other good receivers beyond Toomer uh, at, at that point. They had like uh, who was Rod Dixon, I think, who was kind of like a speed guy, but like wasn't wasn't any good. Um, and so you have Rump over there, and then we can give him some like safety help was the hope, right? And then it turns out Ahmad Plummer just not even remotely up to the task uh, of covering Imani Toomer, like just thoroughly kicked the shit out of him, scored three touchdowns in the first half, all against Plummer. Uh, it was crazy. Yeah, that that was the rough part. I mean, it was it was all over the place, just getting completely roasted. And it, it was, they just had no answer. You think of Tony Parrish, right? Tony Parrish was a free agent signed from the Bears. And he, you know, he had that bionic arm thing before J.J. Watt made bionic arms look cool. Or I guess Gronkowski made bionic arms look cool yeah. maybe before uh, before that. But Tony Parrish was a run stuffer. That's what he did. He he wasn't getting signed because of his coverage prowess. Like he was going to be, he, he would be one of those maybe like money backers, like kind of hybrid defender, Cam Chancellor type player at best. Right. But coverage was not Tony Parrish's strong suit. This was not his wheelhouse. And so you've got 5'11 Ahmed Plummer on an island against the Monty Toomer and it, and it did not end well. But he wasn't the only guy who had a good game, at least initially. You've got Jeremy Shockey glowing and flowing locks of freedom over here, <laughs> throwing ice at fans because his skin was so thin. This was this was the thing that set me off. I used to hate Jeremy Shockey oh, with a same. passion. Yep. I used to hate him so much. And when I heard that he threw that ice at fans in the stands, I was incensed. 
I was absolutely livid as a young Niner fan. <laughs> oh, he was one of those guys that, like, I think now if he was playing today, I th- I kind of feel like I would probably hate him regardless, even if he was on the 49ers. But definitely, yeah. like, sophomore in high school me, that would have been a guy that if he was on the Niners, I would have fucking loved it. Like, all of his bullshit antics and, like, everything that he was doing, like, would have been great. You would have been rooting for him. But if he's on any other team, you're just like, the hell with that guy. Like, I want nothing to do with him. And, uh, yeah, he was he was a problem for them. I mean, again, safety's not necessarily a great spot. He even, I mean, he had some good plays against Julian Peterson, too, who was really, like, one of the only 49ers defenders in this game who looked like he wasn't just completely lost at all times. Um, I mean, he had a, a nice seam catch, you know, up uh, against Peterson where he then took a shot from Zach Bronson, the other safety, and, and was able to uh, stay upright and get all the way down to the two-yard line then on, like, I think it was the very next play end zone fade over Tony Parrish for a touchdown. Like, yeah, he was uh, all of the interior players. Like he was the one giving them problems. And it was basically shocky and tumor like the entire way. Like that was their offense. They didn't need to really go to anyone else. Well, and and they didn't because their average depth of target was something like 6.5 yards in the first half. I mean, it was basically a throw to a running back, a throw to a running back, a throw to a running back, Amani Tumor, Jeremy Shockey, yep. a throw, and then maybe some some runs with the, with Tiki Barber mixed in, and, and and I mean that was their offense. Their offense was not innovative. I mean they they were throwing the ball short and basically just getting it over the top whenever they felt like it, and, and it was working because the Niners' offense after that opening drive just didn't do a whole hell of a lot. Yeah, and I mean Kerry um Kerry Collins was the quarterback for the Giants in this game, and like obviously don't have a lot of good memories of Kerry Collins. Like I think he was largely like a pretty. Uh, shitty quarterback that had a, a couple like mediocre seasons mixed in. But yeah, he was, I mean, he was kind of dealing early in this game. I mean, yeah, there was definitely a lot of stuff. I mean, Barber was a big part of their passing game as well with a lot of the underneath stuff. But it, as far as when he A player did, who was only going to get some time because Ron Dane was injured. Oh my God. Yeah, that, that was funny. The one throw that they had to Ron Dane was he like drops it and that's the Julian Peterson interception on the opening drive. It's like, yeah. it's like a third down play. Like what the hell are you doing with Ron Dane in there? Um, but yeah, it, it was just like uh, whenever they did look to go downfield and, and like uh, take some shots to Tumor or Shockey or whoever it was. And even Barbara, I think it was like late in the first half. Um, they got him out of the backfield and up the seam. Um, and it was, I, I think it was, one of the other line, one of the non Julian Peterson linebackers, either Ulbrick or uh, Derek Smith, I think was on him. And he like, they, you know, ran by him and Collins just dropped it perfectly and over the top, like getting it there before either of the safeties could converge on it. And so he had some, I was like really surprised with some of the throws that he had in that game. He was a lot better than I remembered. That throw was probably, that's the throw that I remembered the most that I had actually forgotten and that I probably wouldn't have noticed at the time, but now I'm like, holy hell, basically running a, a vertical from the halfback position and getting over the linebacker and in front of the safety. And that was the perfect read because that was middle of the field open coverage. It was yep. cover two or cover four. I can't tell because the video was basically zoomed in on one player from the broadcast <laughs> angle and you couldn't see anything else. But it, it was a really good throw. It was a great concept with a great player. And, and I thought that was probably one of the Giants' best plays and yep. one of Colin's best throws. The, the linebackers, I mean, Smith and Ulbrich, I, I will never forget reading a story about Jeff Ulbrich where apparently he got obsessed about gas mileage. And so he would actually drive his Prius barefoot because less pressure on the pedal 
would save you gas mileage. Like that's the kind of linebacker that Jeff Holbrook was. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that's him. That was the core of the Niners defense. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's something. he's a, he's a linebackers coach now. Isn't he like a coach for the, like it wasn't Seattle. It was someone, I forget where he's coaching now, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, I do feel like he hung around the NFL for a while though as a coach. I don't know if yeah. he's still coaching somewhere, but yeah. But so, I mean, the, the, the Giants offense was was definitely moving the ball. It was definitely getting some things done. And, and it was, they were doing it against a secondary that seemed to have no answers. And, and finally, when the Niners began to put some things together, when they finally get to the hurry up there with four and a half minutes left, it, it was largely because Terrell Owens was a man amongst boys. That dude is, I mean, you could tell that in this game alone, it's like, oh, that guy's going to be in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if anyone else here is. That that's like the crazy thing, right? Like obviously, um, it's not a surprise that like, oh, Terrell Owens was good. Like obviously we all knew Terrell Owens was good and, and we didn't need to go rewatch this game necessarily to like learn that information. Uh it was jarring to me how much better he looked than everybody else, like on the field. Um, even the like the Giants defense wasn't necessarily great that year. They were they were fine. They were kind of like a little above average, I think. Um, but he just like it looked like he was uh playing like if he was on Alabama and they were playing one of their week one warm-up games against some shitty like group of five or FCS team or whatever right and you look at the athletes on Alabama and it's just like these guys look out of place compared to that defense right it's just like they're playing two different games essentially like that was kind of how it felt to me with Terrell Owens in this game like he was so much better than everybody else they were putting him against and he just like abused Jason Seahorn in this game. Um, but really it was like whoever they put on him, right? He just, he was their only bit of offense, like while they were largely bad through like most of the first three quarters. And then obviously it was like a huge part of them getting things going late and, and getting back into it. Yeah. His play strength was pretty ridiculous. Cause even on the opening play, he took a simple curl route, broke a couple of tackles and basically runs by everyone for a 76 yard score. There was a play where Jeff Garcia, who we'll talk about here in just a sec. I mean, the ball is basically on his back hip on a drag route. And he's able to collect the ball, break a tackle, and then break back inside and, and catch some, and get some extra yards after the catch. I mean, he was running by people. He was running over people. He was everywhere. And, and his hands were pretty good. I don't think he had any of his, of his drops at this, in this game uh, that sometimes pockmarked his career. Um, but but overall, it was just like you're you're just physically better than everyone, and it was pretty clear. I mean, he had 177 yards and two touchdowns, <laughs> like in a playoff game, and the two and one of the two point conversions. I think he had the first, or did he have both two point conversions? Maybe he had both, and they went on the third one to him. And yeah, the only and it reason thick, it was yeah. intercepted is because it was the same <laughs> damn play or something very. Where everyone's like, okay, look, guard the Owens guy. Yeah, and they finally did it on the two point conversion and got the interception. Right. And so I think that point that you mentioned about like how he was, was winning too, was like, was crazy because it wasn't, he was winning every possible way that you could imagine, right? No matter what they tried to do, um, if they, they zoned it up, like he was finding openings in the zone. If you were going to play a man, he was able to like, not only create separation, but he would get stuff after the catch nearly every time, right? It was like, I'm going to get this catch. I'm going to either turn up field immediately or I'm going to square up and I'm going to make somebody miss and I'm going to pick up another chunky yardage here. There were a couple times they tried to get like physical with him at the line of scrimmage and he would just like bull through guys and throw them aside uh, and get open anyway. Like, uh, yeah, it was, it was wild. He was just like out there doing pretty much whatever he wanted to against that defense. 
And he really did bail out Jeff Garcia at times because I think Jeff Garcia was having an up and down game. I think about Jeff Garcia fondly. I think, you know, he was a, a, I think he was a Pro Bowl quarterback. And that's, I, I don't say that derisively, right? But there are a lot of quarterbacks that aren't playing quite to that level. He was the highest paid quarterback in the NFL, I think, that year because of the incentives that he got. Wow. And, and it's one of the reasons why he wasn't on the roster in a couple of years. But, but ultimately, I think if Garcia was playing in rhythm with his first read, where he could hit the back of the, the top of his drop and just rifle the ball to a slant, a hitch, or a stick route, he was doing pretty well. And if not that, then basically scramble drill. But even then, some of his passes were not super on target. They were definitely balls that the wide receivers had to bail him out uh, a few times. And, and it was because of that that I think he ended up having as good of a game as he did. Now, he still had some pretty bonkers throws, especially the yeah. game-winning touchdown. But, but overall, I thought like it was a very rocky game for Garcia. He was sailing passes. He was missing wide receivers entirely. Um, and and it, it, just, it was one of those things where it's like, man... I, in my mind, I remember you being a little better than that, but at the at the same time, it's like, but you were, but you still did what you needed to do in order to get it done. Right, like a lot of his throws, like he he didn't have a ton of throws that weren't catchable, but they were very rarely like right in that ideal location. Right, there were so many of them that were like taking guys to the ground. Like, I mean, Owens could adjust to it a little bit better than the other guys, but like you, you know, you throw a pass that's a little bit low and behind to JJ Stokes or Ty Streets and like, they're not going to be able to adjust to that quite as well. And they're probably going to only have to go to the ground to catch it. Right. So there were a lot of plays like that where he's, he's getting it there and it's not necessarily a bad throw, but it's definitely a situation where a more accurate throw could have led to like more big plays for that offense in the, in the, in the game. And he just like, yeah, that was the thing. Like you never really look back and you think of Garcia as like being some guy that was like letting rip these big downfield throws and had this huge arm or anything like that. Right. Like, you know, he's undersized and, and didn't have necessarily the strongest arm. And so you kind of like, I think naturally think that a guy that would have even the amount of success that he did would be pretty accurate. Um, and at least for this game, like that part, I think, yeah, was like kind of underwhelming. Like I didn't um, really expect that going into it. It probably didn't help that he jumped every time he threw the ball. <laughs> that part was, I, uh, oh man, I got some laughs, laughs out of that for sure. Yeah, he was making that jump pass popular before Tebow, let me tell you. Uh, he Because on every down, it was a jump pass for my dude. I mean, he he may have been, what, 6'1", but he played like Maybe. he was 5'8". Yeah. He, play, he played like he was 5'8". Yeah. Yeah. He, he, it was, yeah, it was... He was looking to get out of there, too. I think that's why, like, you made the point about, like, he... He he was fine if he could, like, let it rip right as he got to the top of his drop, right? So if he got to that last step in his drop and he had, like, a passing window that he could see through and he could let it rip to that first guy, like, he was largely fine. But there were definitely some times where, like, uh, the pocket was fine, right? He could have stayed in the pocket and, like, largely, like, stepped up or whatever, but he just, like, couldn't see all that well. And so the first chance that he would get if that like edge rusher would get up field too far and he had an opening to kind of go up and out like he was out of there man he wanted to get out on the move get into some space and like to his credit he made some good plays in those situations and so it wasn't all he bad, did but yeah there there were times where the he, he does that thing that russell wilson does so well now where he when he feels the edges come down he is able to like get small and because he doesn't have to get much smaller, uh, get small and, and move up in the pocket and then kind of squirt out and then run flat to the line and make a pass. 
Um, and I mean, that that's a skill that not, not a lot of quarterbacks have. I think now the, the skill du jour for quarterbacks is to do the reverse Romo spin and kind of run out and around um, as opposed to step up and through. And, and I mean, Wilson does all of that well. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly not saying that Jeff Garcia is uh, nearly as good as Russell Wilson is, but their mobility in the pocket and their athleticism in the pocket, I think, um, shared some traits. And he was able to get out of some sticky situations that looked like he was going to get swallowed up and then come out the other end and complete a pass. You might even call him sneaky athletic. <laughs> one one might. I don't know. I, I don't know if I would personally, but one might call him that. Yeah, let me go ahead and pull that comment out of a lunchbox. <laughs> so the Jeff Garcia, though, he did do one thing. And, and one of the things that I noticed with the offense was that it, it looked a little maybe ahead of its time in how spread out the wide receivers were and how many of them were on the field at one time. Part of that, I think, was especially late in the game, the pace and, and, and the, the score is what prompted a lot of that. But even early on, you had three wide receivers and you had multiple threats. And that was apparently because Garcia wanted to open up the offense more because that's what he was used to in the CFL. The last playoff game that he had won was the 1998 Grey Cup. And, and here he is in the 2002 wildcard game. And he's like, let's open that. Let's open this up. Let's score points. And if, and I think the production team mentioned that on the broadcast. And if that's the case, then, you know, Jeff Garcia was at least as, as a football thinker, a bit ahead of his time, which makes sense because, you know, we know college is a little bit ahead of, of NFL and because of the rules in Canada, they're definitely a bit more wide open. I mean, the end zone is 20 yards big uh, for, for God's sakes. Right. So they're, they're about offense and scoring points. And if that's the case, then I, I can't think that that had a negative effect on the 49ers offensive performance. And they were a team that led the league in third down conversions. It was huge. Like once they finally really opened things up, right? Once they got down and, and they were like, okay, we've got to go hurry up here. Uh, it was incredible. Like how much the offense just got instantly better, right? Like there were so many plays early on um, where you have like second and long runs, you know, you get these second and 10 situations and you hand off to Garrison Hurst or Kevin Barlow for two yards. And you're in this like third and forever situation. And, and it just like didn't work out well for them. And so because uh, that was actually like I noticed that with not only the Giants, but like I think the Niners offense early on um, that I thought was like really interesting in formationally and like how their offenses were structured. There were so many um, not only was like the personnel different, right? So like you had a lot of 12 personnel, 21 personnel, two receiver type sets, right? Um, but just even how the formations were set up was like very vanilla, right? They they really favored like balanced formations. So like if I got two receivers out there, I got one on each side, right? I've got, um, you know, basically these like two by two sets. If I've only got one in the backfield where I got two guys on each side of the, the quarterback there. Um, nowadays, you see like offenses really loving to get into three by one stuff because it just causes more issues for the defense, right? You kind of overload one side of the field that causes some problems for zone defenses and stuff, especially it gives you options against man as far as how you're going to release out of that stuff. So you get a lot more three by one stuff, I feel like in, in today's game. And it was just kind of weird watching both of these offenses for a large portion of the game stick into some of that vanilla stuff. But yeah, as soon as they needed to kind of flip the switch and situationally get into that, like hurry up, going to put more receivers on the field type of stuff. Like they started doing that, started doing more three by one in those situations, more motion in there, like doing some of the things that are just like really commonplace in today's offenses. And it like worked out very well for them. The one play that was super jarring to me because it kind of took me out of what I thought was even still current day football when I'm watching the Niners offense was the fourth and one play to Fred Beasley that ends up failing 
they got in a pro set yep. to run a fullback dive. And I mean, that's a play that you saw Bill Walsh run in like, I don't know, the first Super Bowl win. <laughs> like that, that is a straight up fullback dive. And, and out of a pro set, you're just like, what? I, like, when was the last time we saw a pro set in like live NFL football? Dude, yeah, it had to be some of the, like, I would bet it's either like this era, Niners offense, or you maybe had like some Packers um, offenses that yeah. would mix it in a little bit there um, with, uh, with what's his face? Um, McCarthy? Not McCarthy, before McCarthy. The former Niners. Sherman? Coach. Nope, not him either. Mike Sherman? The good one? The one that won a Super Bowl? Oh, Mike Holmgren. Holmgren, thank Mike you. Holmgren. There we go. Um, yeah. So I like, I, I maybe like some of those era, like Packers teams in there were probably using it, but yeah, like the pros, not, they, they had not only the pro sets, right. Where you've got the, um, a back, like basically over each tackle, they're like split evenly across the quarterback, but you had some of those, like, um, I remember like the near and far sets, right. Where you've got one guy directly behind the quarterback and then the other guy split, but they're on the same, they're at the same depth, right. Both backs are, and a lot yeah. of times they're like in the three point stances, yeah, that shit is just like, it looks very out of place. It's very noticeable yeah. when that pops up. But then we get to the crazy ass ending. And this was an ending for the ages because the, the Niners, of course, have come back and they are within, I think, five points at this point. And they call 200 Jet X Colorado double post. I always love it when we can identify the play. Uh, but you've got... Uh, Jet X Colorado double post. What the hell does that mean? Well, the X receiver is running the Colorado. Colorado is basically a slant route, and then the receiver breaks back across the defender's face out to the corner, and then you've got double posts on the other side. So it's basically everyone going to the post with one side ever going to the post, and then the other side going to the corner. And 200 and jets of protection. Got, yeah, 200 jets of protection. And you've got Ty Streets, who's running one of the post routes against Will Peterson to the left-hand side. Now, both... Streets and Peterson were teammates at Michigan and they knew each other really, really well. They were really familiar with each other. So Peterson is able to identify Streets' route based on his stem and he bottles up the post. Well, Streets kind of like drifts back out. Garcia sees the coverage and actually throws it to Streets' back shoulder, which is a phenomenal decision and throw because the ball hits him on that, like literally right on the back shoulder as Streets is turning around. And, I mean, it's beautiful. It's perfect, and he falls right into the end zone. You know, Ty Streets later said that that was the greatest moment he's been a part of on a football field. And, and you know what? That's, I can't disagree a whole hell of a lot because I don't know that Ty Streets did much after that. <laughs> yeah, that's the only play. Honestly, I forgot that he even made this touchdown, and like, I was like, oh, oh shit, Ty I, Streets got the. I will always remember Ty Streets' name because his name, I just feel, whatever it is about his name, it feels like it's like, yeah, you're, a, you're an NFL wide receiver, like Colt McCoy. You're a quarterback at Texas. Ty Streets, you're an NFL wide receiver. You know, like, it's just a name that just kind of like, it's like uh, the Rocket, right? It's like that, that name, Rocket Ismail, like those names kind of oh. like, yeah, they, they evoke the, the thing that you think they are and how they play. It's like, yeah, for whatever reason, it's like this guy, he can run down the street really quickly. Let's have him play wide receiver. Evoke how they play. That's funny because Ty Streets probably should have been on the street because um, I don't know that he was that good other than this <laughs> this one play. Um, no, hey, that man. was that was I'll, the thing. I'll, like I'll the, hit... the name, definitely I remembered. Right, like the name uh, absolutely sticks with you. Like I I remember um, I had a poster of like the of Owens, JJ Stokes, and Ty Streets like on on there in my room as a kid. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely remembered him, but I couldn't have like, before watching this again, I couldn't have, 
mentioned a single notable moment from his career, right? Like I wouldn't have remembered that he scored this touchdown in here. And, and yeah, it was like, uh, I mean, it was a hell of a fucking throw. I mean, we talked a lot about the Alex Smith throw, right? In the Saints rewatch game and, and just like all of the things that went into that and like how good of a play it was for Alex Smith. Like this was a hell of a throw for Garcia like that, a back shoulder throw, throwing it away from the defense on this type of route, right? So Streets is the outside. You mentioned the double post in the play call, right? Um, usually what you're trying to do is hit that outside post most of the time. You want the the inside post there to be able to kind of like draw the underneath coverage away and, and have them kind of occupy it. And you get a one-on-one situation usually with that outside post. And so that's what they got, but Peterson drives on it. He's there. And and like, if he leads this out in front of him, it's at at the very least a pass breakup, if not an interception. Um, And so it's not a route though, that you're typically going to see like guys hit back shoulder on, right? It's not like a, a deep ball down the sideline where there can be kind of like a built-in adjustment based on what the leverage of the corner is that you just kind of see. And it's a, a more routine thing. Like, throwing a back shoulder on a post route in this concept, like isn't a normal thing that you see happen consistently. And so, yeah, it was just like, it was a hell of a play from Garcia to be able to recognize that the corner had that inside leverage and was driving on it. And he needed to be able to put it in a spot where only his guy could get to it. And then it was a great play from streets as well, to be able to make that adjustment and hang on to the ball. Yeah. Cause I mean, he turned, he turns his shoulders and it's almost like the momentum of the pass like he catches it and it just carries him into the end zone and he falls over. It's almost like he was tapping his toes on the end line as if he was going to be out of bounds if he went too far or something <laughs> like that. It was it was weird, but it, it that's why that play will always be ingrained in my mind because just him falling over ever so slowly, just I don't know why, but that image is just burned into my in my young brain and I can't forget it. But after that, things get all I mean the game's already pretty nuts. The fact that the Niners were able to come back and score and now they're up things now get even a bit crazier because you've got a two-point conversion and the Niners have just scored the go-ahead touchdown. There's a minute and five seconds left on the clock and Owens starts to basically get after defensive back Sean Williams. And and he gets taunting, right? He, he gets an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, but Sean Williams retaliates. And so instead of a penalty being enforced on the Niners on the kickoff, which would put the Giants in a great position to score a game-tying or game-winning field goal, the penalties offset, and it's basically no harm, no foul. And that's a huge, huge deal because a field goal ties it, sends it to overtime, or wins the game if the Niners don't score the two-point conversion. And then he does it again. So then, like, so you mentioned, right, the uh, the, the two-point conversions, and they actually did, like, this was, from a coaching perspective, one of the smartest things I felt like Mariucci did was uh, start going for two immediately, right? He didn't wait to, like, see if they were going to fully come back, and, and that really, um, I think, helped them out and, and turned it into, shaved a possession off, basically, that they needed to. Well, they did that. They did that because their field goal kicker was injured. So Chandler, oh, right. their rookie, yeah. their rookie kicker, he sprained his ankle or twisted his ankle during warmups to the point where Jeremy Newberry, the, the talker that we know that he is, goes into the locker room and starts screaming obscenities up and down and basically say, like, if you don't like fucking kick for us, I'm going to you know do this and this and this to you. And so Chandler, he had made a 24-yard field goal earlier in the game, but his kickoffs were already pretty short. They were terrible. Yeah. And, yeah, and they were pretty bad. And it was because he had sprained his plant leg. He'd sprained his left ankle, not his kicking ankle. And so that's why Mariucci basically said, you know what? Just at this point, we're already down and our field goal kids are injured. Just go for two. 
oh, I should have known better that it had to be something situational that forced the coach to do something smart rather than the coach actually choosing to do something smart. Like, uh, I should have, should have absolutely known better, but yeah, so you get the, so they've, they've gone for two, uh, two times at this point and got both of them, um, converting to Owens. They go to Owens again for the third time. It gets picked off and Owens, man, just like they're, they're blowing the play dead for, for like 10 yards at this point. The well, guys because like, at that point, at that point you can't return right. uh, a score for points. It's, it's once the play is intercepted, it's dead. Over. And he just, so like, you know, the, the defender out of habit is, is like kind of starting to run back a little bit, but eventually the ref gets to everybody's attention. They blow it dead. He starts just kind of like jogging off the field uh, toward the sideline. And Owens like basically dives at him and like punches him in the back of the head and throws him to the ground. Uh, and then it just like everybody's going fucking ape shit from there. Yeah, because it had been getting testy all throughout the game with between Jeremy Shockey being Jeremy Shockey and then some of the, you know, Owens. I remember at one point, uh, when the Niners scored their first touchdown in the second half, I think Strahan points to Owens and like basically says scoreboard, scoreboard. Oh my god! Um, and and it, which is a great moment by Strahan. One, but two, it had been increasing in chippiness over like over the course of the second half, and and then. When Jeremy Newberry sees this, he seems to be like the the unheralded star of this game because between the shit talking and, and ultimately what happens is he goes in to help Owens because just a couple of years ago, Owens had done the Dallas Star incident and George Teague goes up and, and, and levels him. And so Newberry goes to try to defend Owens. And in the process, he's fighting off a couple of defensive backs and one of them rips off Newberry's helmet and tries to punch him right in front of the ref. And that's what gets the other penalty, which is another offsetting penalty. So Owens escapes again from putting his team in a hole and that defender got ejected. Yep. Yeah, it was just like completely bailed out on that one where he, again, was like so stupid. And then you just have the Giants players who are imploding at this point, just completely falling apart. I mean, you mentioned the... Like one of my favorite parts of this whole rewatch was so you get the stray hand bit after that first touchdown, right? So the it was right at the end of the third quarter there, their first touchdown in the second half that kind of started the comeback. And he gets the the scoreboard point there and then you fast forward to the end of the game uh and Strahan is like storming off the field pouting. They show him like walking into the tunnel and it's just oh my god, it's perfect. Well, this was after they caught what looked like Strahan in a compromising position because you've got the him. They, they cut to him right before the final field goal. And there is a dude like it looks like Strahan is either looking at the Jumbotron or looking away from the Jumbotron. But there is a dude on his knees right in front of Strahan facing Strahan. Strahan. Got- Facing, facing Strahan. Strahan. And Strahan has his hands on the guy's shoulder and or head. <laughs> And I just, the camera cut to that for a second. And I was like, I, I gave that confused puppy dog look like, Hur? like what's, oh, what's going on here? I was, so I was watching this game. My wife was like in the room watching it with me, like kind of, you know, half paying attention, but, but doing some other things. But she like, see, they turned to that shot and she just immediately like looks over at me like, <laughs> what the fuck is that? <laughs> oh man it was it was fun and obviously nothing was happening right it was just people in the oh, game and, and that's great. what happens but yeah it was it was a hell of a little it's a hell of a little moment <laughs> um but but so the 
Owens gets bailed out a couple of times here from having his hot head cost the 49ers, and now the Niners are going to kick off. But you still have Jeff Chandler with an injured ankle, and so the kickoff is really short. And the Giants are able to get a return, get great field position. And, and now you've got them trying to drive. Ahmed Plummer almost gets an interception, a sealed game. And, and it ends up kind of squirting out, and, and they end up reviewing it, and it ends up not being an interception, and it's the right call. Um, and, and it makes, you know, it's, it's almost a game-sealing interception, but it was not to be. Even Amani Toomer played better defense than Ahmad Plummer did in this game. He not only roasted <laughs> him on offense, but then he did a better job of getting involved in breaking up this, this potentially oh game-ending interception than my Ahmad God, Plummer amazing. did anything defensively in this entire game. That was... Uh, that was the moment there. But now we get to the man of the hour, one Mr. Trey Junkin, who, much like Ty Streets, much like Colt <laughs> McCoy, has a name that maybe imparts a bit to what happens here. Trey Junkin, he's a 19-year vet, and he's retired. He's cracking beers. He thinks his career is done. He's, he's on record as saying that he used to pop a bunch of Vicodin before games because he had such issues with his shoulders and his like his extremities that he would wish that people would hit his head and not his shoulders because he could at least bear the pain of getting hit in the head. He could not bear the pain of getting hit in the head. This, this guy put 20 years wow. in the NFL and he's retired. And the Giants get they have an injury at the long snapper position. And they call Junkin up and they say, Hey, we need you for the game. And he's like, All right, let's go. Let's do it. He might be able to get a ring for this go round. He, he said later he was interviewed and he said, quote, for 19 years, I tried to be invisible in my profession. Once I put my hands on that ball that day, that shitty snap was my fault. And I think about it every day because on that last field goal, the snap is low. Matt Bryant picks it up and holds the ball over his head, indicating basically everyone get downfield. What Matt Bryant seems to forget is that it's third down. If he spikes the ball, and Chris Collinsworth smartly points this out on the broadcast, if he spikes the ball, the Giants live to kick another down. But instead, he holds the ball up. It's basically everyone get out. And you've got offensive lineman Rich Seibert. Subert? Seibert? I don't know. Uh, he's down the field, and Matt Bryant throws the ball to him. And just before the ball gets there, Cheeky Okafer pulls him down by just grabbing his shoulder pads right below the neck. And, and like it's at this point, it's absolute chaos. There's flags on the field. No one knows what's happening. It's complete chaos at Candlestick. Fans are running on the field. And it's like, holy shit, what the hell is happening? Uh, and then Ron Winter says that Cybert was ineligibly downfield, nullifying any PI. Game is over. Wrap it up. Niners win. It is one of the absolute most bonkers endings to a game I have ever seen in my life. Dude, it it is so wild. Like the the whole thing. So like uh one I had a new appreciation going through this moment and rewatching this game for the officiating experts, right, that we've got basically on every single broadcast today. So every game, right? Every every network has got their officiating guy that chimes in and and kind of offers their expertise on like how the rule book 
covers a certain situation whenever something tricky like this comes up. And instead, all we get is just kind of like largely chaos and the announcers, they don't really know exactly like what the rule is and what's going on. And it's just like, oh, he's an eligible downfield. Sure. Like, okay, then you can't be interfered with. Like that logically makes sense, but nobody knows if that's like actually the rule. And so there's this kind of this like sense of confusion for the whole thing. Um, but I, I mean, I got to say, like, it's it's hard to feel bad for the Giants in this situation. So it came out the day after the game. Mariucci gets uh, a notice from the league that it turns out that this guy was, in fact, an eligible receiver. And he like he checked in with the official before the play. So it should have been called pass interference. And Mariucci just says, bummer. Because, I mean, what else are you going to say? I mean, that that's great. That's a great one line. The only problem with that is that apparently he was then getting hate mail from everyone in New York after he got fired. And they were like, hey, Mooch, you got fired. Bummer. And after he left to go coach the Lions, apparently, anytime they'd play New York, everybody would be like, oh, bummer, Mariucci, bummer. Like, <laughs> Which is, is great. But... So to to go back like where where it's like okay you get that the the refs in the league um, admit to like screwing up that situation I just don't feel bad for the Giants because it's like they absolutely imploded down the stretch so not only do you have like the with both of those penalties right they were the retaliating part of the penalties the offsetting penalties right so if they would have just kept their cool and done nothing like those would have been penalties they would have been able to tack on, um, you know, at the kickoff and, and set themselves up with potentially even better field position. I mean, they started already at midfield after the crappy kick and in, in return that they got, they could have started out with even better field position there. And not only does Junkin mess up this snap, right. And put him in that situation to begin with, he fucked up the snap right before that. They had another field goal on the previous Giants drive that was also like the snap was almost identical. It was low and it was away from the holder. So uh, he had to yeah, like, reach out it as a result. Yeah, trapped it on the ground. He got it up, but the, the kick was terrible um, as a result of it. And so they screwed up two field goal attempts that either one of them they convert and they end up winning the game. So it's like, you know, you got to you got to look in the mirror a little bit there and realize that, yeah, you made some mistakes that were within your control that would have like rendered this decision by the refs irrelevant. And I don't feel bad for you. Yeah, I think that the I don't feel bad at all for them just because, you know, they eventually got the the karmic version of this in 2011. So, you know, I feel like in the football universe, it all kind of evened out in playoff wins against the Giants. Sure. sure. <laughs> but but, you know, the the game for me, this was a bonkers game to end it all. I feel terrible for Trey Junkin if he does indeed yeah. still wake up and cold sweats about this, thinking that, you know, he, he cost the, the team a game. But, you know, the, the aftermath of this game is, is probably what sticks with me the most because this was the last good game for the Niners for a very, very long time. <laughs> I mean, after this, Mariucci gets fired because what do you do when you have a coach that leads you to two straight division wins after a 12-win season and then a playoff win. And this fashion, well, you fire him uh, because he lost to Tampa Bay uh, the following week. I mean, Dennis Erickson, just what, yeah, clearly Dennis Erickson, better coach than Steve Mariucci at this Absolutely. point. Uh, yeah, dude went seven and nine. Uh, it really, this was the beginning of, of Terry Donahue completely gutting the franchise because of some reason that I don't even know what. I mean, at this point, in 2004, Garcia gets released. Tim Rattay takes over. They didn't even have enough money to sign a veteran backup for Tim Rattay, who had three career starts, because they didn't have any money. They had $28 million in dead money 
which was a third of their salary cap that year. That's the same thing as having a $59 million dead cap number with today's cap. And just for that context there, like the, currently the teams with the most dead money on their cap, right, compared to what would be $59 million, there are only two teams that have even over $30 million. The Jaguars and the Panthers are at 37, 36. Like th- that would have been over $20 million more in dead money than the, the leading team in the current NFL. And you've got Terry Donahue who basically got rid of the entire offense. They lost seven offensive starters, including Ty Streets, uh, Eric Johnson, the dude who could never have two healthy collarbones, but still managed to put up a thousand yard season. Like I, I watched this game and, and throughout my notes, it was just like Eric Johnson, Oh, Kevin Barlow, Vinny Sutherland. Remember (laughs) Vinny Sutherland? The dude walked into a penalty because he like that. This was his shining moment in the, in a Niners uniform is basically he got a penalty after a fair catch that he probably shouldn't have kept moving forward, but he did and got hit and got a penalty. He got lucky because he couldn't keep his balance. He he basically (laughs) got a penalty for being a shitty athlete and stumbling (laughs) as he made a fair catch. Uh, Hey man. uh, Yeah. There's a direct line between Vinny Sutherland and Trent Taylor. Okay, let's oh, not no. let's not besmirch this line. Oh, no. uh, but you've got, I mean, you've got Derek Deese. You've got Ron Stone, another guy with a really yeah. uh, like unusually large pad on his arm. Uh, there were so there were so many players in this game that I was just like, oh my god, I had completely forgotten about all of these players, and and so it was such a fun game. It was such fun strolled on memory lane, and then Terry Donahue was like, nah, cut them all. Cut them all. Up. $28 million in dead space doesn't matter. Uh, and even Terrell Owens was traded a year later. And that basically the Niners team was terrible from that moment on until 2011 when Jim Harbaugh was hired. And so this, this to me was like the last moment that the Niners were any fun to watch until we got to 2011. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's crazy that like this was really the last moment that they had and were any good, you know, for over a decade, basically, or nearly a decade. Sorry. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, up until Harbaugh, like there was just a shit ton of bad football from basically this moment on. Well, I do. I call it the decade of darkness because that's really what it was for me and a lot of other fans, right? Salary cap hell and the whole nine. But are you listening to the flying coach podcast at all with Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll? I haven't. I need to though. Okay. So you should, cause it's amazing, but they had Michael Lewis on a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about Moneyball and the blind side. And he's got an interesting anecdote in there about how after he wrote Moneyball, but before he wrote the blind side, he met with the 49ers quote unquote brain trust. That was a very Moneyball like brain trust, which at this point, one can only assume was Parag Marate and the burgeoning 49ers analytics department. Now, Moneyball was written in 03, and the blind side was written in 06. So somewhere near 2003, 2004, which was around this time, was when Michael Lewis met with the 49ers Brain Trust. And he asked them, Michael Lewis, asked the, the Niners Brain Trust what they felt the money ball situation was in, in football. And they said apparently they had done all this research and they had done reams and reams of research and it was really all about how you distribute money within your team under the salary cap. Basically, you know, never paying certain positions more than a certain percentage or how you allocate those dollars of your salary cap across the roster. And I that's not 
wrong, I don't think. It makes a lot of sense, right? You don't want to allocate a bunch of money to an unimportant or non-valuable position. These are still lessons that teams are still learning right now. But I, I wonder if that lesson, that report was given to someone like Terry Donahue and he used that as an excuse to basically cut, like to gut the roster. Like maybe he completely misunderstood this <laughs> this thing and just said, oh, that means we shouldn't be paying Jeff Garcia a ton of money. Oh, that means we shouldn't be paying these good players a lot of money. Let's go ahead and cut them all and rebalance it and take our medicine. He's literally on record in the New York Times as saying we have to, we had to take our medicine cap wise. Like I, I have no idea if that's the case, but I wonder if this was the outgrowth of you know, him looking at the cap saying, we don't got a lot of money. We don't got a lot of cap space. Well, what are we going to do? Well, let's see if we can do what the stat heads are saying and just kind of gut everything. He treated the team basically like you do when you're bored entering like a Madden franchise. Like you've already done, like you've been playing this like edition of Madden for like fucking nine months and you're waiting for like the next one to come. And you just decide that for a challenge, you're going to like take a good team and just fucking trade everybody away and see if you can build it back up again and still go like 19 and 0 with these shitty ass players like that was basically like how he treated the 49ers once he he got control yeah i i there are lots of reasons there are lots of reasons why the niners are bad for a long time but i i personally believe terry donahue is to blame that's that's the guy that's the guy who i i shake my finger at whenever i get a chance to but Man, so ran, ran, quick, some random thoughts about this game. What were some other things that popped up in your head while you were watching the game where you were like, huh, okay, that's that's interesting. Number one, Julian Peterson would be excellent in today's NFL, ahead of his time. Like, the, the versatility that he had, and it was funny, too, because, like, I think if you were going to point out a weakness, it was that he wasn't, like, a great run defender. I mean, it was hard to, like, again, you did, the, the camera angles and stuff that you had in this game wow, does that make you appreciate the, like the broadcasts that we get, uh, get today. But so it was like, you know, could, could be difficult on some of those plays to really like determine what they were trying to do. But you know, it, it looked like there were a number of situations in the run game where he just like, wasn't, wasn't super great. Um, but like from a, a pass game perspective, just would have been excellent. I mean, he was a great athlete. He could rush off the edge. He could drop back in coverage. He could, you know, man up. I mean, we mentioned he had the one play against Shockey that he gave up against the seam, but, like, that was really the only, like, notable negative play that I remember seeing. And, I mean, Shockey was, again, a very good player. Like, one of the players you would point to in this game that um, would probably still do well in today's NFL. And so, yeah, I just think, like, what he offered on – the back end, you know, being able to play multiple positions, having the versatility to like line up in different spots, follow different players around. Like he would fit so much better in today's game and probably be a, a far more notable player if he was playing now. Wasn't there a game where Peterson played like seven different positions in one game? Like, didn't he play linebacker, defensive end, corner, safety, and like a couple of other things sprinkled in there all in one game? Was it one game? Like, I have a recollection of either being one game or he played all of those positions. Like, every, he basically played every position on defense over the course of a season or something like that. It was, it was one of those things. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't remember. I think it was one game. I'm pretty sure it was yeah. something like seven or nine positions. Like, basically, all he didn't play was like nose tackle. And maybe and defensive like, tackle. I, no, I think it was just nose and like outside corner. Like no, I do think he lined up as outside corner outside one corner snap. Too? Because it, yeah, because I think it was like against a running back or something. So, but but he he was the outside yeah. most corner lined up on that snap, and so it goes down as being like you know the outside corner. Um, but no, I totally agree. D- Julian Peterson was one of those players that now like we think of Derwin James as a hybrid player that 
kind of transcend scheme and you really have to know how to use them. And, and honestly, to his credit, Jim Mora, uh, Jim Mora Jr., the defensive coordinator, did use Peterson in that way. He did move him all over the place. And, and that was, you know, a fantastic application of, of a player with a really unique skill set. Yeah. You know, for me, I think one of the things that, that I took away from this game is that there were a lot of comeback connections from this game. I, they, they cut to the team, and on the sideline, you see Jason Garrett as the backup quarterback for the Giants. And you're like, oh, okay, you're, you're a quarterback. And, and, of course, Jason Garrett was the head coach of the Cowboys during a pretty thrilling overtime loss for the Niners in 2011. And then later on, at the end of the game, they cut to Jim Fossil walking off the field. And who's behind him? Sean Payton. Sean Payton was the offensive coordinator of this Giants team. Oh, wow. I missed and, that. Yeah. And, and he, of course, was the head coach of the, 49, uh, of the, the Saints when the Niners beat the, the Saints in the divisional game in 2011. Same year. That was Basically, this was the last time the Niners were good. And the next time that they were good, they were still dunking on the, on the coaches that were here for the Giants, coaches and players. Uh, you know, of course, later there was a, a game against 2013 where Ahmad Brooks was flagged for being too tall. Sean Payton ended up getting on the last second kind of field goal. And then the Niners, of course, went against the Saints in 2019. I mean, basically, like some of the, the players in this game are still tied to some ridiculous comeback wins for the 49ers, you know, 18, 20 years later. I think the, the next thing for me was that I didn't recognize that Kyle Williams was really just doing his best Cedric Wilson impersonation in that 2011 playoff game against the Giants. I mean, Cedric Wilson fucking up in all the same ways, essentially, like had <laughs> had the muff punt uh, in there in this game that set up a Giants touchdown, um, which thankfully led to him no longer returning punts. And that's how we got uh, Sutherland in there that ended up taking that penalty because he stumbled on the fair catch. And then on his only catch of the day, uh, offensively as a receiver, um, he really, he fumbled it and he like got very lucky that his knee just barely grazed the ground um, before the ball was punched out there. So just like really uh, a high batting average for fuck ups and the plays that he was involved in, in this game. And it was just like, yeah, the first thing my mind jumped to was like, wow, this really feels like that Kyle Williams game in 2011. Yeah, and I think the last thing for me about this game is that it it seemed really, it seemed like whomever had the ball last was going to win the game because everything was incredibly symmetrical. Both the the Niners and the Giants gained exactly 446 yards. Both of them finished 6 of 13 on third down. Both of them threw one interception. And both of them dealt with critical special teams problems, specifically in the kicking game. For the Niners, it was because of an injured kicker. And for the, uh, for the Giants, it was because they had Trey Junkin, who was junking through his snaps. So overall, I think, you know, it's just one of those games where, man, if, if they get, you know, a little different bounce here, if, you know, that bounce where Cedric Wilson muffs it goes a different way. If Jeremy Shockey catches oh, the ball in the end zone and, and doesn't, you know, let it slip through his hands or fall out of bounds, you know, this game is totally different. And, and it's just, that's why this game to me is just so great. Even now, I think this game holds up in terms of what happens and, and how bonkers it is after the first half. It's just such a fun game of football. And it's just, it was really sad to me that it took almost 10 years for the Niners to have a game nearly as fun again uh, because of how piss poor they were managed uh, from, from basically this game until 2011. 
And that's why I can't believe you nearly thought about making me try to watch games from that era. But uh, I think, yeah, the last <laughs> the last thing um, for me, like not really even specifically to this game, but just really with like the broadcast. I mean, you mentioned like a couple times already as far as just like how you watch this old broadcast that's not in high def, that it just like it looks so different stylistically from what we get today. And it just like really, I feel like makes you appreciate the things we get today. Like there was there was a point late in the game where the I think it's on the final Giants drive. I'm like wondering how many timeouts they have because they don't have the timeouts like listed there just on the scoreboard for you to take a peek at like at any moment, right? They have to occasionally flash them as like a little drop down from the the score line that they've got up there at the top. Um, so there's things like that. I had also completely forgot that there was that Collinsworth shared a booth with Aikman and Buck at any point. Like I, I, I did not remember that specific like three man booth at any point. Um, so that was like as soon oh, as I heard I remember, Collinsworth, I was like, whoa. I remember that booth because I remember Collinsworth being just he was so biting with his. He was the guy who was kind of the asshole in the booth. Yeah, and and he's he's calmed down a bit from that. He still has a little bit of that in his tone, but he's come off that a little bit. But. I'm glad he's not in that booth anymore because that that booth was a bit of a mess, and and I'm I'm glad that Collinsworth is is in his own right one of the top broadcasters for the NFL right now because I, I don't know that that three man booth would have would have worked for me long term. Did you see though that they were all wearing like matching? Oh the oh my god! Oh the black turtlenecks! Yes, I wanted to start snapping. <laughs> I I'd just be like, oh my god! It was so good. I I will say I. I will give Aikman some credit. I feel like he is way better now than he was in this game. Like in this game, he really was. And I think for most of his like broadcasting career was really the like old school thought process. Like guy, you know, never don't go for it on fourth down. Like don't take risks. Like don't all the shit that we hate, right. That like it would annoy us about a broadcaster. Like he's been that guy. I feel like lately he's really been trying to branch out. He's still not like all the way there. He's, you know, you're not going to call him like the most progressive announcer or anything. I feel like he's made strides though. Like listening to Aikman last season compared to Aikman in this game, like is a pretty notable difference. And, and I, I feel like I appreciate that a little bit more too. Well, that does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. If you haven't gone back and watched this game, please do so. It's such a fun game, and, and it's a game that I really enjoyed watching. It's a game that really kicked off my my Niners, uh, I, I guess, career, put it in, in air quotes. Um, <laughs> uh, but it really is just a fantastically fun game. So make sure you go back and watch it. It's on the YouTubes. Uh, we will be posting a recap of this game as well on our Patreon with some video breakdowns in case you wanted to see some of the visual stuff that we're talking about. So... Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. You can always follow me on Twitter at Better Rivals. David, where can they follow you? That'll be at PFF underscore David. Thanks again for tuning in. And as always, go Niners. Go Niners.